Hi, I'm Rob Harvilla of 60 Songs That Explain the 90s, and I am this week's guest on Metapod. You're listening to Metapod, where we unpack the web's most interesting podcasts and the stories behind them, hosted by Wendy Morrill and Kevin May. Mr. May, I have two questions for you, if I may. And hello, everyone. Welcome to Metapod. Uh, you may, Wendy. And yes, greetings, dear listeners. What is your favorite song from the 1990s? And what song do you think explains the 90s? Okay, so the first one is easy. It's Depeche Mode's Halo. And for fear of doing a little bit of self-promotion there. Actually, more on that in episodes to come, folks, I promise. Kev, that's quite a cliffhanger. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, oh, it is. well, in true storytelling fashion, cliffhangers are good. Uh, but anyway, maybe we'll come back to it later. But Okay, I mean. so the second part to your question is a bit harder. I think, actually, much to my dismay, I'd probably say something like Oasis's Wonderwall, uh, or Wannabe by the Spice Girls, or perhaps Genie in a Bottle by Christine Aguilera. Okay. Good choices. Oh, yes, yes, thank you. And uh, the rules dictate, obviously, that now you must answer your own question, Wendy, please. Oh, okay. Uh, this is tough. For favorite song of the 90s, I'm going to say Cannonball by The Breeders. It's a and very if, good choice. If you would be so kind as to give me a second one, uh, mm-hmm. it's actually a 90s remake of a 70s song. That would be Roberta Flax, Killing Me Softly, as done by the Fugees. Mm-hmm. And a song that explains the 90s, um, too, I'd say Smells Like Teen Spirit, Nirvana, and mm-hmm. Baby Got Back by Sir Mix-A-Lot, also said with much dismay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> indeed, I don't actually know what song you're talking about. Look it uh, up. reference to Baby Got Back, I've heard of Smells Like Teen Spirit once or twice. So, okay, so the reason why we're quizzing each other here about songs that explain the 1990s is because our guest this week has actually done this 60 times. Yep, 60 songs that explain the 90s is a very literal title for Rob Harvilla's hard work. Yes, and this is no ordinary podcast. Rob crafts a clever combination of facts, opinions, and interviews, wrapping it all together with a fast and funny narration of each song. We'll put links in the show notes to our favorite episodes from his 60 shows. But for me, actually, certainly his analyses of Oasis's Wonderwall again and Madonna's Hanky Panky are brilliantly and hilariously done. I didn't realize we were so funny, Kev, but Rob laughs a lot in our interview as we meander through his reasons for picking songs and a whole lot more. So coming up is our chat with Rob Harvilla, recorded in January. Okay, I will start the tape. Villa of 60 songs that explain the 90s. Welcome to Metapod. Kevin and I are really glad that you could join us all the way from Ohio. Likewise. Thanks so much for having me. So, Rob, tell us why exactly do the 90s need to be explained and who the <laughs> heck needs to be explained to? Mm, well, 
I when I started the show, I had the idea that my audience theoretically would be half people like me who grew up in the 90s, went to high school and college in the 90s, who would use a show like this primarily as a nostalgic project. And but the other half of the audience would be young people to whom I would explain, you know, the most important songs, events of the decade. And I, based on anecdotally, just the DMs, I get the emails, the feedback that I'm receiving. I think nostalgia is more like 80, 90, 95, 99.5% of the appeal for the people who are listening. And that's totally, totally cool. Uh, But yeah, it's the nineties. What I've always said is that the nineties feel far enough away that they're safely the past, that there's something you can feel nostalgic about. But they're still, they feel it happened recently enough that it still feels like it's having an active effect on what's happening now and what's happening musically, what's happening politically, what's happening emotionally. You know, it's 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 a nice mix of far away, but not too far away. And do you think you will have accurately explained the 90s in full by the 60th <laughs> song? Yeah. Wow. As I speak to you, I believe I am on episode 56. Okay. I have four episodes left in which to explain the 90s. I can't look you in the eye over Zoom and tell you that I think that I am <laughs> four songs away from explaining the 90s. I am feeling <laughs> quite a bit more anxious exponentially so the closer we get to 60. I think I'm doing okay. Depending on how one defines explained, fully explained, you know, I, I, I it's a good effort at the least if that's all it ends up being that i'm comfortable with that i'm doing the best i can can i ask you rob just to uh, butt in for a moment Hmm. why are you anxious about coming towards the (laughs) end of your 60. because i think that when you start out you think you have all the time in the world all the slots in the world but the closer we've gotten you know the list of songs that we still haven't done that seem very obvious to do in a project like this i that's a very daunting list at that point that song that list is longer than four songs put it that way the realization that this ends with a lot of people mad at me because i forgot xyz uh and another 50 songs on top of that that's that's a real concern i you know i'm I'm gonna have to be hiding out here i'm gonna have to hide in a more remote part of ohio for a spell for a few months it's very stressful i don't know this has this has bonus content written all over it rob that's true it's yes it's it does (laughs) occur to me that 60 was an arbitrary number like i you saw i started the show i've never done anything like this before i never had a podcast never done anything of this sort and i there's a certain logic to 90 songs that explain the 90s for example but when i was starting this show it's like i don't want to be the guy with a show with 90 in the title where everybody hates the show and I get canceled after four episodes. (laughs) That would just be embarrassing. And like, but 60 is still a lot of songs, but like 30 felt like too few, right? Like I, 60 is a very arbitrary number. I enjoy saying 60 songs, but there's no real, you know, logic behind it. It's totally arbitrary, but that's, that's what we're stuck with, you know, and here at number 56, I'm just going to have to live with it, I guess. Sorry, just as a follow up then, by the time this episode comes out, we're recording this on the 10th of January. So by the time our episode comes out, I estimate if if you're doing these once a week, Mm -hmm. how do you feel about completing the podcast? (laughs) 
Oh, I feel an enormous sense of relief and accomplishment <laughs> having already done that. I'm thrilled. I feel very relaxed. Yeah, it's 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 going to be tough. I I feel like just for me, just for my personal enjoyment, I I've gotten into a really good rhythm, you know, the weekly rhythm and like sort of the yeah. feedback loop, you know, it's not like being lavished, you know, showered with with DMs messages, but just hearing from a few people every week just feeling feeling like people are responding in some way you know i've been a working journalist for 20 plus years you know and there are times when i'm getting a lot of feedback you know when i write about the weekend write about kanye west write about you know music that's coming out now but it's this is a more consistent amount of feedback i i feel like more people are responding to this than they've typically responded this my writing and i've really really enjoyed that and so it's it's i i'm very sad to lose it as well and i'm hoping to find you know some other project with which to fill you know the hole that is now formed inside me so rob just to let the audience know a little bit about you um i've noticed that your twitter profile features yosemite sam um it also notes that you're an uncompensated dairy queen spokesman Mm -hmm. potentially something you could explore after the podcast yes um, tell is, us a little I'll, bit I'll, about yourself and those things. <laughs> Yosemite Sam and Dairy Queen are both very important to me, as it turns out. I Was that my original? I do believe that I chose Yosemite Sam when I joined Twitter, which was 2008, maybe. And it's, just, it's an arbitrary decision, but I didn't want to be one of these people who's changing their avatar constantly and confusing everybody. And so I just, I was a big Looney Tunes kid growing up Saturday morning cartoons. I watch okay. them sometimes with my kid, you know, it just, Yosemite Sam was an arbitrary choice, you know, once again, that I'm now stuck with, but I'm, I'm cool with that. Um, so yeah, and I just, I eat a lot of Dairy Queen or I try not to eat a lot of Dairy Queen. You know, and I, I I tweeted so much about Dairy Queen just subconsciously that I then became very conscious of it, you know, and 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 so I it just I realized it was a huge part of my brand. All of a sudden, is just tweeting about you know whatever the blizzard of the month was or whatever. I was very embarrassed, but then I decided to just own it. So you know, those are the two pillars of my being at this point. Okay, so for listeners who don't know what the Dairy Queen Blizzard is, (laughs) maybe you could just tell us your favorite one and what the ingredients are of it. Yes. I swear we'll get to the music. No, that's fine. I'll talk. It's worth worth noting. It's actually, it's worth noting, Rob, that I asked Wendy the exact same question just three days ago because I didn't know what a blizzard was. So, but for our esteemed listeners, go for it. A blizzard is ice cream dairy queen ice cream is soft serve mixed with with candy with various kinds of candies you can get like butterfinger heath you know m&ms etc which one are you reacting to wendy what is your personal favorite i anything with peanut butter peanut i was gonna say peanut butter is my personal favorite like like they got one it's like literally it's called like the extreme reese's the word extreme (laughs) is in the title of this dessert that's the level I'm operating on now, the extreme peanut butter blizzard, which I believe involves both Reese's peanut butter cups and Reese's pieces. That is probably my personal favorite. You know, this will eventually ruin my life if it hasn't already, but that's, it's it's been a popular Dairy Queen product for at least 20, 30 years at this right. point. Right. 
And you're based in Ohio, which um, I guess is safe to say is the center of the rock and roll universe since the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is based there. That's exactly, that's actually, yes. I thought that would be the right thing to say. Um, What's unique about (laughs) Ohio? And um, assuming that you grew up there, is there something unique about the music growing up there? Hmm. Okay. I was born in Cleveland. Uh, I grew up, I was in St. Louis, Missouri, as a little kid, I, but I grew up mostly in the suburbs of Cleveland. I went to Ohio University to study journalism. First job was here in Columbus, Ohio. I met my wife. We moved to Oakland, California. We moved to New York City for a while. We came back here to Columbus to raise kids. We will remain here probably for the rest of our lives. We got, we got our family around. We're dinging it. There, there are three Dairy Queen locations within Ooh. 10 minutes of my house. Everything's great. <laughs> um, yes, it is. It is very true that Cleveland is the the birthplace of rock and roll. According to Cleveland, the Rock Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Museum is, is an excellent place to spend an afternoon, at least ninety minutes. Is there a musical quality? I, you know, obviously, what I've always loved about Columbus. My first job was here in Columbus, Ohio, working for an alt weekly. I started in two thousand. I was here for three to five, or three or four years, and. I grew up on alternative rock radio, which was a very big thing in the Midwest, I gather, especially that's sort of the bedrock, my foundation. There's a I'm near Ohio State University. There's a lot of really good local music here. There's a really mm-hmm. good indie radio station called CD 10. I don't know what frequency it is. They keep changing. It was CD 101 when I got here. So I guess I would say, at least for me growing up, in the mid '90s, you know, Midwestern alt rock radio, which always felt like it had a very specific flavor to me, is sort of how I got to be the way that I am. Okay. <laughs> okay. Let's 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 find out more about the the way you are, then, Rob, if we can. I mean, <laughs> and uh, for those that are listening now, if you hear a pause, that's because Rob's cat's been crawling all over him. So <laughs> you see. <laughs> <laughs> She's taken now to like biting cords. She keeps biting, you know, uh, uh, iPhone chargers in half. It's like this is this is disconcerting. Habit we're <laughs> yeah. getting into. She's okay. Fine. Well, you've you've banished her for a little while, anyway. Okay. So from your uh, also esteemed list, then for the podcast, and we can assume that you've published all tw- all sixty now. Mm-hmm. What would you say is the quintessential nineteen nineties track from your list? Ooh. Okay. The quintessential. There was just one, you know, semi charmed life by third eye blind, which is a song. I didn't even go into this project thinking I definitely have to do that song. That wasn't on the absolute, you know, I'm going to get shot if I don't do this list necessarily. I sort of chose it arbitrarily one day. I put it together very quickly, but I, I did find that one to be particularly enjoyable. I get a bit more feedback about it than I thought I would proportional to like what you would think of as bigger songs, bigger artists, more canonical. Mm -hmm. And so I think for my purpose, again, which is mixing, you know, a critical perspective from a very personal perspective, I think if you have to choose one song, it has to be something that's not like a totally, totally, totally obvious thing. It's not necessarily Tupac or Nirvana or whatever. It's something like one level down in terms of critical importance, but that has a great deal of personal importance for people. It's a song that was ubiquitous. And even if they didn't love it, even if they didn't seek it out, they know it so intimately just because of how popular it was that they love it, even if they hate it. 
if that makes sense. And it feels like semi-charmed life for some reason sits at that exact nexus of like a really big hit that's ubiquitous, but is not held up as like, you know, one of the top five, 10 canonical tracks of the nineties, but it's something that everybody knows. And most, most importantly, everyone has an opinion on, you know, you're not an agnostic about third eye blind, about third eye blinds, front man, about semi-charmed life. Like you, you have some sort of life experience loving or hating this song just because you've spent so much time with this song, whether you wanted to or not. That's fair enough then. So how alongside that one, what kind of criteria other than some of the ones you've kind of hinted at already then, Rob, if you, did you go through to pick the other 59? I think that, you know, you start out a list like this, a long list and you you have to pick out the songs that are very very obvious right like there's just, yeah. there's absolutely no way you could do a, a good faith assessment of the 90s not talk about lauren hill for example you know however I, I, there there's a list of 10 to 15 obvious ones to start and then there is sort of a mid-range list of like massive hits that that all feel obvious when you ruminate on them just for 10 seconds you know but aren't the most canonical aren't the smells like teen spirit type songs and it just it proceeds like that in tears but I also wanted to set a few aside that were that were just for me, that just had a very personal meaning for me, or I felt like I could bring something special, something unexpected to them, like sort of wild cards, I guess, is the easiest way to put it. And so it's it's always been, you know, working with my editor, Justin Sales, this whole time, like just having these these terrible tyrannical Google Docs, like full of songs. And like suddenly you wake up one day, it's like, Tori Amos, how can I not? do Tori Amos and then I do it and I love it. Like the other thing that I, I want to allow myself is a little bit of space. Like I have never known for sure what the next three to five episodes are gonna be even. Like I wanna make sure that I can wake up one day and decide I wanna listen to Tori Amos all week. You know, I haven't done this for years. I just wanna do it. Like you can make a snap, I can make a snap decision like that. So it's this really weird balance between the obvious and the unexpected and like the well-planned <laughs> versus the flexible, you know, and it's, we're just, we just sort of stumbled along, you know, and gotten, as I speak to you to 56, you know, and if I, if I'm not dead by the time your, your listeners hear this, <laughs> then I succeeded somehow. <laughs> Do listeners agree with your take on the songs as you present them? And what's the most surprising feedback you've received from a listener? Okay. Um, I didn't come into this expecting to be this way, but I have found myself just naturally like not ever being like, I hate this song. I totally hate this song. If you like this song, I hate you. You know what I'm saying? Like everybody has songs that they actively dislike. And that's as much a part of the character, their character as like songs that they love. Mm -hmm. But I, I decided gradually over the course of this, I came into this not wanting to yuck other people's yum for any, for lack of any other way of saying it. Like there's not a lot of negativity. The one exception to this, I wanted one episode where my guest, like every episode obviously is me talking about it for a long time. And then I interview, you know, somebody else about it and get their yeah. perspective. I wanted one episode where the guest hated the song. Okay. Cause I just thought that would be funny. And I, I <laughs> arbitrarily, I was, I spent a long time trying to find the right person and the right song. And I arbitrarily, well, not arbitrarily, this dude, 
good Jay Caspian Kang, this wonderful sports and political writer. He's got a podcast now. He put out a book this year, but he every so often he would tweet about how much he hated night swimming by R.E.M., which is a song that I love, which is a band that I love. But he had this very specific visceral dislike of night swimming by R.E.M. And I was like, that's what I want. I want to talk to that guy. And so I did an episode and I did because I was talking to somebody who hated the song. My part of the episode is like this especially florid, like personal sentimental journey through my love of R.E.M. like as a kid and as a high schooler and as a collegiate, you know, doofus. And it's like now I'm going to bring in this guy and he's going to tell you why anyone who loves the song is an asshole and you should never talk to them again. And like people are still mad at me for talking to a guy for like oh. ruining, you know, my florid exploration of why night swimming is a wonderful song with this guy who's just like, yeah, it's awful. I just, I, I, I'm probably, he did exactly what I wanted him to do. He made a very compelling argument. I'm very grateful to him, but I, I'm glad that I did that once. And I think I'm only going to do that once. <laughs> Have somebody like just come on specifically to say, yo, this song is terrible. Have you ever tried to get any of the artists on the show themselves or is that just opening yourself up to something that you don't want to get into um we did consider and we have had a few times open mike eagle the rapper did the episode about the breeders about last splash we have had a few musicians the dude from eve six max from eve six did third eye blind in fact you know i listen to a ton of podcasts i read a ton of interviews i feel like i read and hear a lot of artists describing their own work Right. I, I I felt sort of instinctively like this wasn't a place where like I want to try and get like this is never going to happen. But like Courtney Love to come on and talk about like why Hole is great. Right. Like I'd rather talk to somebody else, somebody more impartial, you know, even if always slightly more impartial. It just I you get a lot of artists touting their own work elsewhere and this felt like a place if we were going to bring in popular sort of known musicians i wanted it to be them describing their own favorite songs you know something that they have no professional affiliation with which is something that was important to them growing up that felt like a better way to go about it i think it's and you'll forgive me if you disagree hopefully but i think it would be fair to say that it's fairly unconventional in the way it's um, produced, narrated. You know, it starts off without a theme tune. It's just you starting to mm-hmm. talk. You know, the beginning of the Oasis Wonderwall one, I think within the first 20 seconds, you're yeah. asking your mum to turn it off because there's going to be lots of bad language. Yes. I think. How did you come up with that style? And I wonder mm. whether your answer mirrors where what I think. Well, I definitely want to know what you think, first of all. <laughs> I, it's... It developed naturally, I think, you know, I, again, I, I have guested the ringer does a ton of podcasts, people who do this professionally and have for five to 10, 15 years now I've guested on those, but I've never done anything like this before. And so I was just starting from scratch. I had an idea of what I wanted, but I just, I'm a writer. And, and I, so I just started out writing it and then speaking it out loud. Right. Like there was, if I, that I am never in a million years going to go back and listen to say like the first five episodes that I did chronologically, I started with you ought to know by Alanis Morissette. What I will say is that episode is about 25% as long as the average episode now. Like I now talk like four times as much. That's the first thing that developed naturally. Like that's disconcerting. But yeah, it, it's, I, I realized academically that I couldn't just type out a normal essay and speak it. 
Like I had to actually learn to perform it and sort of adapt it to this format. But I did that, hopefully not arduously, like, but over the course of these 56 episodes that I've done. And one thing that happened is they got way longer. But hopefully another thing that happened is that I found a way to not ever go too far into performing them. I don't want to come on like I'm any kind of thespian, like I'm like I'm doing a one man play or anything, but I just <laughs> naturally it just sort of developed this style that it made my writing better. I really do think that because what what I've always disliked about my writing, you know, for the ringer for anywhere is that it gets a little convoluted, right? The sentences get a little long. There's like five semicolons and six adverbs, it's just disconcerting. Like one thing that I learned immediately is that if I'm gonna be talking out loud, like it lends itself to shorter sentences and just simpler, clearer thoughts. And I, I think that that has helped, you know, the writing that I've done that doesn't have anything to do with the show, but I think it developed for me a style of writing for this show that feels natural, that feels like a performance and it feels like I'm just talking to you but it, I, I know it also feels totally like written and totally, hopefully, organized. It's it's a weird balance, but I I like where I've ended up. Okay, yeah, that's <laughs> yeah, that was I, I said to Wendy last week. We've been um, swapping our feedback on various episodes and uh, one-liners from lots of episodes, actually, because some <laughs> of it really is very funny. And uh, I think I said to Wendy, and I'm paraphrasing my own comment here about you know it reads like a feature article in the New Yorker or the Observer where I am and you've spoken it out. And that's not a criticism. Yeah. That's, you know, it's that kind of relaxed Sunday, sit back and listen where ordinarily you would read it. Does that make sense? That's great to hear. That's rad to hear. <laughs> okay. I, you know, I don't even know if I had, I aspired, you know, to that level, but that's wonderful to hear. That's awesome. Okay. And uh, just last one from me for a moment. Does your mom listen to the podcast? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's been a while. If she if she listened to that Oasis episode where I told her to turn it off, she hasn't mentioned it, which I don't put past her. But I, I am trying to think of the last one that she listened to. And it has been a really, really long time. You know, oh, if she if she is still listening, if she is a fan of this show at all, that she's keeping it really close to the vest. She's being real cagey about it. I don't think she's listening anymore. It's fine. She's very busy. I take no offense. So when Kevin said that he thought you were a feature writer, I imagined that you would be a drive time satellite radio <laughs> DJ that my dad would really enjoy in the car. Okay. Also I, a compliment. That's nice too. Yes. I thank you. That's that's if your dad's into it, then I'm into it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how how did you want people that were listening to react to the show? Did you mm. imagine they would just be laughing or you know, learning about new songs that they hadn't heard or arguing with you? Hmm. I Again, like, I, I sort of shied away from the argument part of it. Yeah. I think the show is overall pretty positive. That felt like a, a natural impulse. Um, again, I sort of started with the idea that half my audience would be people who didn't know the artist and I would be explaining more and half of it would be, you know, a sort of, joining me on this nostalgia trip. I think the nostalgia trip is way more, way higher of a percentage of this enterprise and that's cool. And so I, I think I naturally gravitate toward humor, something lighthearted 
you know, but there are, I wouldn't go so far as to say, like, I want them, you know, I, I'm trying to, to teach them things, but I do, there have been a handful of episodes that have been a little weightier, right? Sinead O'Connor, you know, Aaliyah, Aaliyah, I dreaded for a very, very long time. I sort of weighed whether to get in, you know, can I do this without addressing R. Kelly at all? You know, can I do, how do I do Sinead O'Connor when, you know, she's had such a rough life, but also she's had a very rough, she had a very rough series of interactions with Prince. Like, can I, can I do this episode and avoid that? Like, I can't, like, I, I try and avoid those episodes, Fiona Apple, another one, I, I try to avoid like taking a, and you know, sitcoms used to have like a very special episode, right? When they addressed like this very serious thing and the entire tone changes. I didn't want it to be that stark, but there are occasions when there's just, a, a, what I'm talking about is more serious and there's a tragic element. There's just a very severe, you know, aspect of it that I have to be very careful and very sensitive about and so again it's finding that balance you know there are there are episodes there are songs where i'm just able to sort of screw around you know achy breaky heart springs to mind for some reason where it's just me sort of nerding out about weird al yankovic at length for some reason but i did want to balance that with with some that were more some that were heavier and more serious and try and bring as light a touch as i can to those while stu still doing those topics and those people justice. So, I mean, in terms of the 90s as a decade and the culture of that decade and music, do you feel that there were more controversial events of the decade than other decades or not so much? You know, how would you characterize the decade? Let's see. I one artist that I've also been dreading for a long time is Britney Spears, right? At Baby One More time comes at the end of the decade it's a, it's a huge hit you know if you're going to do a project like this that explains the 90s it's hard to avoid her but i even the last six months you know to a year of britney spears discourse it's just it's been wild to watch this unfold and part mm -hmm. of what's happened just very recently for us is people going back and seeing how she was covered in the 90s just those magazine covers just the way the paparazzi treated her like this this yeah. habit now and people have written really excellent pieces about it. Lindsay Zolads wrote about this for the New York Times about this, these documentaries now that go back and look at something that happened in the 90s and talk about how the media reaction to it was often so screwed up. Woodstock 99, Fiona Apple and Tori Amos like talking about their experiences with sexual assault and just the very insensitive way that some people, some critics, some interviewers handled that topic you know, in the late 90s versus how they would be expected to handle it now. Yeah. I think what typifies this decade and what I often, you know, the way R. Kelly was talked about even two years ago, you know, prior really to surviving R. Kelly, you know, some people had been writing the truth about R. Kelly and trying to alert everybody else to the truth about him for years and years, decades, you know, but even in the 90s, he was still just an R&B god, you know, with some controversial aspects uh, to his personal life. I think the weirdest thing for me going back is, is, is those situations. When I go back and I read Rolling stone and spin even the new york times you know when i when i see how some of these artists were covered even positively covered back then it's just stuff that would never ever fly now and you sort of realize mm -hmm. 
is that it changed our whole perception of them, the way that people wrote about them, you know, things that they would never be able to say now without, you know, getting flamed on Twitter, at least. I think one other thing that happened, well, that started in, in the mid to late 80s was the whole campaign for parental warnings on music mm-hmm. led by Tipper Gore. Mm-hmm. And it, it's odd how that's pretty much obsolete now, or it doesn't really sort of pointless with the way that music is consumed now. I mean, how did explicit music lyrics inform your teenage music years? Did did those labels make a difference? I mean, it made that music cooler. Right. You know, I remember I, I was raised Catholic, at least for a little while. And I had, you know, these religious classes, these confirmation classes. And I remember being in one and everybody being a buzz about two live crew, right? Like Mm -hmm. me so horny was a big deal, like banned in the USA, like that whole controversy was happening. And that just made everybody want to go out and find a way to listen to two live crew. Same with the ghetto boys. You know, I'm working on it this week. It will be out in the world by the time this airs. Like I'm doing Rage Against the Machine this week, but I'm also talking about Ice-T's Cop Killer, Body Count, you know, which is sort of the quintessential, like that, that, that album, that song is not on streaming, you know, which does not feel like an accident to me. There are still holes that sort of happen organically, but I, I remember that song, you know, I, I I didn't grow up in a super strict, you know, religious house, but like my parents were paying attention to what I was listening to, you know, they would, they would wince when I would get around to wanting like Guns N' Roses, things like that. Like those labels did matter and those labels did affect what I was able to hear or how old I was when I heard it. And it's, you're right that it's not as big a deal now. And I think part of that is down to like, my parents could keep me you know, from the body count record, you know, in 1992 to a far more effective degree than like I could keep my children away from music. I didn't want them to hear now. Like I, I, Mm. unless I, you know, periodically we tell my boys that YouTube, you know, went out of business and doesn't exist anymore and they can't go to it ever again. And they like, believe me for 30 seconds or whatever, but like, I don't know what I'm going to do when they're teenagers. And it's like short of, of, of cutting off the Wi-Fi in this house, I cannot keep them with 100% accuracy from the music. I don't want them to hear part of it is just simple access in that way. If you want to see, I, uh, I have two teenage children. If you want to see a natural disaster born from within inside a household, okay. turn the Wi-Fi off and see what. <laughs> Honestly. Okay. So that will cause more problems than it solves. That's 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 good to know. I, that's not, I, that's well, not depend- good to know, but I'm glad to, I know. <laughs> yeah, it's just worth knowing. It's kind of fun to do every now and again to see, <laughs> so you can see to see the reaction you get. And I'm making an assumption that perhaps you see the '90s as a golden age of music. If yes, explain why. And if not, which decade was the golden age of music, if we're allowed to use that cliche? I think that 95% of the time somebody refers to any age of music as the golden age, it's when they were a teenager. You know, the fact of the matter is that in the 90s, I went to high school and college, and that's the end of the ballgame. As far as I'm concerned, I, I consider myself, I fancy myself like an active listener. I love music. I listen to as much new music as I can, but both for personal and professional reasons, but there's no way I will have ever have 
as personal, as intense a relationship with as much music as I did when I was a teenager in the 90s. And so that makes this by default the golden age for me and like parts of the 80s as well, because I was a kid, you know, I, I was just jabbing MTV directly into my veins, you know, starting from when I was five, six, seven years old. And so that's, I do think, you know, there there are actual canonical agreed upon golden ages, including for hip hop. And I think that there's an argument for that here in the nineties, there's a very specific flavor that nineties hip hop had. And it's also the continued commercial ascent of it. Like those two things working in, in tandem, the quality and the increased quantity and visibility of it. Like that's, there's a legitimate argument for like an, an objective golden age of hip hop in that sense. But again, I think it's all down to when you were young, you know, and you can, you can retain a lot of that zeal all your life. You know, it does get a little harder as you, as you grow up and you've got kids of your own, you got responsibilities, you know, and the music is not being marketed to you anymore. Like I'm writing about Billie Eilish. I'm writing about Olivia Rodrigo and I can bring a lot of scholarship to bear on those records, but I'm just not going to experience them the way a teenager experiences them. They're not for me the way it's for them. And so that's yeah. what I've always thought of as a golden age is what's personal to you and what you listened to and loved when you were growing up. What was the first gig you saw, Rob? The answer to that is the monkeys with Weird Al Yankovic opening at the Muni in St. Louis, Missouri. It was, I think, I believe it was when the Monkees were on MTV, right? There was a period where they were in reruns on MTV and they had sort of a second life to them. It was Dare to be Stupid era Weird Al Yankovic. We had to leave. It was past my bedtime or whatever. We left before the Monkees played last train to Clarksville. I was really depressed, uh, but it was a great show. That was the first show. I also think I have like a weird sense memory of seeing the Doobie Brothers at Six Flags when I was like a super little kid, like up in the bleachers. I, you know, I may have just implanted that myself somehow, but I'm pretty sure that happened and it may have been earlier. But the Monkees and the Weird Owl, it was the first one I was truly conscious of. I mean, some might argue that the 90s was the, you know, for the arrival of some specific genres. So, for example, mm. shoegaze. This was right and you know kind of techno music really came to the fore at the at the end of the 80s into the 90s hmm. um are there any genres that you were most happy to see the back of that kind of came and went <laughs> Ooh, you know i make a lot of jokes about ska i was in a ska band uh, in college we were called what did you play what did you play? i played bass i played bass Good and instrument in the ska, yeah. I was, I was, I was pretty good. I, and I the group was called Scantily Plaid, S K. Oh, of course, and yeah. I Very didn't good. name the band. It's a fantastic name. Uh, this was right. It was 96, 97. So it was in America, like the third wave of ska, right? Like real big fish, no doubts. You know, it was all very lame in retrospect. But, but, but again, like I, I've touched on that in a few episodes of the show. And I, I remember it fondly. Like, I'm not going to sit here and pretend like I listened to Skull all day long, anything like that. Same with Swing. There was a year, I believe one in 1997, I saw both the Cherry Poppin' Daddies and Big Bad Voodoo Daddy live, different shows. Like that never happened again. And I don't know if I would ever want that to happen again. Like that feels like a good candidate to be like, yeah, we probably should. But even that's like, it was weird. It was bizarre. And I think you have to allow, you know, weird 
bizarre, you know, potentially distasteful and like, I don't really want to relive this, you know, elements into your life every now and then. And so, yeah, there are certainly genres that I was into for a cup of coffee, you know, as a 21 year old that I don't really return to now as a mature, you know, 43 year old, but, but I don't regret or renounce any of it per se. I suppose related to that, if I can, many people reach a certain age and um, they might hear something and they roll their eyes and go, oh, the music of today, it's terrible. Uh-huh. Do you do that yet? No. And I, it's, again, it's harder work potentially to do that. I sort of listen to music and acknowledge like this music is trying to upset me. And I'm not <laughs> going to allow it to. I am cool enough to understand why a young person would think this is cool. Like I can at least get to that level. And that's a professional qualification, of course, like this, I I consider myself a rock critic, you know, and I try to be mindful of what my areas of expertise and my blind spots are in terms of both genre and both terms of era. You know, it's, there's no, my joke that I make constantly is at the ringer. Like I'm one of the only people writing at the ringer who was alive in the eighties at this point it's very upsetting to me so like when bob saget dies right like i'm one of the very few people at the site who can really talk about what it was like when bob saget was just getting started in full house america's funniest home videos in the 90s like i that i understand what my wheelhouse is you know and of course this show is a representation of what i regard my wheelhouse as but i i there's nothing that i listen to that's like Oh, this is absolutely terrible. Because again, I I think another feature, another aspect of that golden age when you're a teenager, when you're in high school, when you're in college, is that this is music being made to and marketed to you. And it's yours. And Mm. it's yours in the sense that it's not theirs. It's not older people's. Like it's supposed to be exclusionary in that sense. My parents aren't supposed to be into the same music that I am when I'm 21 and they're not. And so I try and respect when I come across something now, something new, something made by a 17 year old, you know, whose like artist name is just like a random string of words. I just, I get very confused and I have to work a lot harder to figure it out. And again, I'm always going to approach it in a more academic way than like a kid would who just sort of understands what's happening here. But I, I do try and keep that curiosity open. Personally, a, a few years ago, my daughter, who would have been 15 at the time, mm. was listening to things that I would categorize as, oh, that's a load of shite. Like Being what? The kind of grumpy old, um, a lot of um, UK R&B stuff. Ah. Just just not really into it. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then a year ago, she came back and she said, I really like the Arctic Monkeys. <laughs> <laughs> and all of a sudden, just like that overnight, uh-huh. kind, of, kind of into Ella's music, you know, it's great. Oh, wow. So it, it, it did change on a dime. Sorry. That's a beautiful thing. <laughs> circle of life. In one of your episodes, you and I think perhaps your guest say that by the late 90s, everyone gets an alt rock hit. And mm. I was wondering what you think everyone gets now. <laughs> Everyone gets a viral TikTok meme. <laughs> that's that's as you, close you don't as know I how close get. to the truth you might be with that. Okay, one. yeah, it's that's that's as close as I'm ever going to get. I'm afraid, but I'm hoping it's pretty close. What episode was that? Do you remember? Ooh, not to put you on the spot. I 
when it's See, this is where we this is where we just say it really quickly and edit it in like we knew straight away which, which episode i'm, I'm well, just like, wondering if it was the breeders the breeders might have been it you know because cannonball was sort of an unlikely hit the second episode i ever did was hey jealousy by the gin blossoms and sort of right off the bat like that was a song when i first started thinking about this that i wasn't like i absolutely gotta do hey jealousy this whole thing is, is, is bullshit if i don't do hey jealousy but like once i got into it it's like yes of course. And I feel like those songs tend to be alt rock hits. You know, it's like you you dig into you dig just, just past the first layer of any alt rock hit and you find a story worth telling, you know, or a story that's like, how can I have a larger project like this and not tell this story? You know, I there is that quality very specific to me to alternative rock which again is what i grew up on you know as a teenager and that probably explains why i feel that way but i it definitely does feel like even these one hit wonders something like chumbawamba's tub thumping you know it's a song even if you haven't heard about think even if you haven't heard it or thought about it for 25 years it's just there's there's a fascinating backstory there that's worth legitimately worth you know digging into yeah, I think that you also discussed the chaos of the decade and that if you were listening to college radio at the time, you may have heard quite an eclectic mix of things, probably part of the episode as well. Yeah, I was I did college radio in the late 90s, and I still remember when we started playing You Got Me by The Roots. And some people were like, this is not right. You know, like our tagline was Athens. We were in Athens, Ohio, Athens only alternative ACRN. And they're like, this is not alternative. This is not alternative music. You know, we were playing like <laughs> flashlight by George Clinton. Like we, we started having these arguments about what alternative oh, was. Yes. And oh. Another thing, <laughs> another specific thing about the nineties is I don't think I always wonder how true this actually is or if it's just hindsight, but it's like, you didn't seem to have people who listened to everything, right? Like it felt more siloed off. And part of the reason mm -hmm. for that is like you had to buy the CDs. You could only listen to the music that you went out and bought. You were going to go for the things that interested you most. Like you weren't able to be as adventurous and listen to anything ever the way you obviously can now. And like that, that is more likely to to funnel you only into alternative rock or only into hip hop or only into R&B. You just didn't have as much eclecticism in the average listener as you obviously do now. And I'm sure that that in turn affected the music that was made. Like alt rock bands are playing alt rock music for only the people who really love alt rock. Whereas now I think artists start out with this idea that they can cross over to everybody and then they do. Just curious if there's any bands that really cross so many decades that you felt you couldn't include them in this show. Ooh. Yeah, there's there's some there was some messiness there. Mm. Uh, the Cure, for example, you know the question. Okay, so like once I realized that nostalgia, you know, that my audience was almost exclusively people like me who grew up with this music. The idea, like, well, I could do the, the '80s next, right? Like, I could do sixty songs that explain the '80s. But like, am I aging up my target audience? right is the concern there like is now like the only people who are really going to be interested in the show are people who are you know in their 50s and were teenagers in the 80s and i the cure 
Like there are a couple of records that just really annoy me by the fact that they came out in 1989. Janet Jackson's Rhythm Nation would be one example of that. And is Disintegration is the Cure's Disintegration 89? I think it is. Yes. But okay. And so that's another one where it's like, I could do Friday, I'm in love. And I would love to do Friday, I'm in love. Who says that I'm not going to? But I, I, what I would obviously prefer to do is, you know, a love song or, or something else off Disintegration because that, that album's so important to me. But I, the question is, like, if I do it now, can I not do it if I go back to the 80s or if I go forward to the aughts? The biggest argument against the aughts is that I hate the term the aughts. I wish there were a better way to describe, you know, from 2000 to 2009. But I, that's always been a consideration, as you say. Like Madonna was sort of vexing yeah. in this way. Like I, I had to address Madonna. And we, of course, we went with Vogue, you know, but that was one where I had to confine it pretty specifically to what she did in the 90s. Because if I started talking about her in the 80s, I was going to run out of time. If I talked about her from 2000 on, I was going to run out of time. Like I had to take... It's such a big catalog that I had to, to narrow it down to just her 90s stuff. Yeah. There's plenty, obviously, but it is vexing when you have an artist who's been working for that long. Like Prince is another example. Michael Jackson is another example. These people are active. They put out great records, but not their best records in the 90s. Like, how do you account that? Well, we've got a quick fire round for you, if that's oh, all goodness. right. Please. Okay. Please. Ready? And uh, Kevin and I will take turns firing these questions out at you. Okay. You ready? And it's generally the theme is the personal best and worst of the 90s. Oh, dear. Okay. Okay. All right. I'm going to start off with personal favorite vinyl, CD, or (sighs) ka-single. When I think about 90 CDs, I think about Pearl Jam's Vitology, which is an album that meant a lot to me but also the cd case was was larger it was not it was like i don't know it was like book size and it was a little bit taller than the other cds and so it looked really pompous even sitting on your cd shelf like that felt like a very deliberate choice that eddie vetter etc made and so i if i think about a cd from the 90s that's the first one that jumps out to me and like pearl jam was you know top three top two maybe my favorite band you know when i was in high school so you preferred okay. the CD format? I, I certainly did back then. I mean, I, I it's embarrassing to say, like, I can burn a CD onto my computer, et cetera, but that doesn't feel like the same thing. Like, I have a stereo, I have a modest collection of vinyl, but I do not have a dedicated CD player, even though, like, my CD player was my most prized possession all through high school and college, right? Yeah. It feels, I feel very naked without a CD player at this point, but I do not have one. Right, Rob, let's assume that you did have lots of band posters in your bedroom when you were in the 90s and a teenager. What would have been your favourite or, phrased another way, which one would you have been most disappointed to lose if your cat climbed up and pulled it down? (laughs) Um, I don't know if you're basketball people, NBA people, um, but I I grew up in Cleveland. I was a Cleveland Cavs fan. And even so, a very strange thing is I, for most of high school, even though Michael Jordan was like the terror of you know the scourge of the cleveland cavaliers in that period and that is the only poster that i can picture on my wall back then i had a rolling stone subscription and i was big into like cutting out pictures from mm-hmm. it and putting them on my wall but mm-hmm. it's it's hard for me to remember 
them now. I cannot, it's, that is a bizarre sort of block because I'm sure that I had them, but the only, only one I can remember is like, not a life size, but like a very tall Michael Jordan poster, oh, yeah. like looking down on me, you know, and vanquishing my beloved Cleveland Cavs once again. It was, it's, it's a very disconcerting thing that I owned now that I think about it. Your favorite music video from the era. <laughs> oh, gosh. I mean, the first thing that pops into my head is November Rain, Ooh. which I don't know if I ever watched and thought, you know, that had the concrete thought, this is my favorite episode, uh, my favorite music video of this era. But it certainly is probably the one that I saw the most just based on how often it was on MTV. You could be mine, uh, the Guns N' Roses again, like the the Terminator 2 crossover video. Like I, I saw that like 50,000 times. I tend to think about Guns N' Roses if you're talking about like the most ubiquitous video. Sweet Child of Mine, like Welcome to the Jungle sort of unnerved me, like even Patience. Like I wasn't like a hardcore Guns N' Roses person. Again, that was a band my parents were not really into exposing me to if they could help it but those are the videos that stick out to me the most and that obviously starts in the late 80s but it, it continues at least a little bit into the night and your most it, despised video despised see again like i i'm sure i did hate things you know and define myself in opposition to them like everybody does but I don't sit here now despising anything or particularly having a memory of despising okay. anything. There were plenty of songs, plenty of videos that like I just got tired of. Like Blind Melons, No Rain. It's like the B-Girl is, is quite amusing, like, you know, the first 200 times. But after a while, it's like, yeah, we got it. Like the captive elements of MTV where they just kept showing you the same thing, whether you wanted it or not, like that, that turns you on pretty benign bands and songs and videos. But I, I cannot think of anything that the word despise encapsulates. Okay. Let's, let's uh, assume if we can, Rob, that you handed over bass playing duties momentarily. So who would be in your, as well, would be in your 1990s supergroup? Oh my goodness! This is a group that I'm in, or this is a group that I am. No, no, no. You're no. You've, you've decided. Yeah. You've decided you not to play bass in this one. No, yet. that's a that would be a bad idea. Okay, it's hard to have Flea in there, eh? You know, Flea has is, is, proved himself remarkably. You know, he mixes well. He plays well with others. Flea does, and so I guess we're gonna put him on bass. What popped into my head is Chris Cornell singing. You know, like I Soundgarden was somebody. I would never thought of myself as a super fan, but I always really dug when I heard them on the radio. I had Super Unknown and I loved that a lot. But I think Chris Cornell has emerged. And part of that is the tragedy of his story. But like his both his vocals and just his style, like just his beauty, for lack of a word, like he sort of emerged in retrospect for me as like the quintessential, you know, alt rock front man in terms of the total package. And so I guess what I'm assembling is a grunge slash, you know, alt rock <laughs> super group. Here, uh, Flea and Chris Cornell. Should, ooh, 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 I, you gotta get Kim Deal in there as well. This is already a very strange mix of people, but whether, you know, she can play bass, she can play guitar. She has one of my favorite voices in rock history, you know, I, I think we got to I think we got to get Kim Deal involved in sort of like a rotating sort of power trio, if that makes, you know, we don't have a drummer, though. 
I'm taking this way too seriously. I bet she can I play drums. I bet she can play drums. Let's get the dude from Tool to play drums, right? Danny Carey. This is an incredibly loud and even with Kim sort of macho band. Uh, but that's that's what I'll go with. Those four. Let's see. Let's see what they come up with. All right. I think the last one is um, name your quintessential '90s album art. Wow. Yeah, the Vitology thing springs to mind. Um, okay. But. The first thing I see often when I close my eyes, when I, I did a Radiohead episode, I did an episode on Creep and I talked about going yeah. to a record store and seeing like all the album covers and being sort of entranced by them. And like each of them cost $17 and like agonizing over which one to buy. And teenage fan clubs bandwagon-esque. Mm -hmm. It's like, isn't it pink? And it's got, it's the bag of money. Yeah. And I really loved that song. The concept when I heard it on the radio, I saw them on Saturday Night Live. And like, I almost bought bandwagon-esque like, thousands of times from the record store when I was in high school and I never did. And of course I listened to it eventually. I loved it. It was like, I really wish I'd had this record when I was a kid. And so that, that album cover stays with me is like the road not taken or the, the, I suppose the road not taken sooner. Like when I think about album art, I think about these, these records that I used to agonize about whether or not to buy them and like including that album art in the decision to buy them or not, you know, and I, I didn't get it right a hundred or even 50% of the time. And Badwagon-esque is one that I did regret for a while. And so that cover does stay with me for that reason. Okay. Okay. So we look forward to hearing the final four episodes of uh, <laughs> 60 songs that uh, define the 90s uh, we appreciate your time and i personally want to say i th i still think each liam gallagher vale gets its own parker is quite possibly one of the funniest lines i've ever heard on a podcast that's that's very kind of you to say i really appreciate you talking i really appreciate you listening and it, it means a lot you know just to talk to you so thanks so much for for having me on all right thanks for coming on the show we'll see you soon thanks rob I get a feeling that Rob could pick many subjects and create a funny, informative and unique collection for a podcast, Wendy. Such as 50 films that annoy my dad. Or 20 household chores that irritate teenagers, uh, which actually on reflection there are about 50 of those on And don't forget the classic 25 dressings that can ruin a salad. Yeah, indeed, the list is endless. Uh, <laughs> but sadly, our interview with Rob was not. So we had to let him go. Actually, he had to go and pick up his kids. But our huge <laughs> thanks to him for speaking with us a few months ago. We wish him well with whatever comes next. We do. In fact, let's go 90s and make it extreme well wishes with an X, okay? <laughs> so talking of extreme and not in a caffeinated Mountain Dew flavored Sour Patch Kids kind of way, we've got another music related podcast coming up toward the end of May. That's with Robert Rodriguez, who has produced... As we look at the list now, 228 episodes of Something About the Beatles. Yeah, there's another big clue in the title as to the subject matter. You know, if there could be a university faculty of Beatleness and a professor of Fab Four, Rob would be there. Indeed, it's an extraordinary podcast with what feels like unlimited angles on Liverpool's finest export. Indeed. Uh, we've got a few more shows to come between now and then, of course, uh, featuring the What Could Go Right, It's Nice to Hear You, and the Extortion Economy podcasts. Yeah, so we'll be back in two weeks. But Kev, when are we going to hear more about that cliffhanger you mentioned earlier? The pet 
Okay, it's right. So, one. yes, uh, very briefly then, for a bit of self promotion, I have a book which comes out on the 5th of August, co written with a very fine and one of our loyal listeners, David McElroy. Uh, mm-hmm. It's about Depeche Mode, and uh, more details will be on halothevioliatorbook.com in the coming weeks. Thank you. Okay, then. Um, hello to David. And hello, stay David. Tuned. <laughs> Thanks again to Rob Harvilla, and uh, we'll see you next time. That's it for Metapod this time. Thanks for listening. Metapod will be back soon with another unpacking of the web's most interesting podcasts. But in the meantime, make sure to subscribe at any of the usual places you find your other favourite podcasts. We'd hate for you to miss upcoming episodes, and we'd love it if you left us a review. You can let us know what you think of this episode by going to metapodshow.com. We'll see you next time. Metapod is produced by Wendy Morrill and Kevin May.